you know, um, there's a great book, I've read it many times, started it, uh, started reading it years ago, this, this book called Wild at Heart by a guy named John Eldridge. There's all kinds of uh, you know amazing stories in this book, but one of the stories that Eldridge tells is about a friend of his, his name was Craig, and you know, Eldridge tells a story about Craig who had a really kind of complicated story because when he was four months old, his father was killed in the Korean War, so he never even got a chance to really know his biological father, and his mother would end up remarrying, and the man that she married, Craig's stepdad, would eventually adopt him. And so his stepdad would become his father figure, but it was a pretty messy relationship uh, with this man that adopted him. You see, his adopted father was kind of a, a grisly old retired uh, like Navy captain. And he would speak pretty harshly to Craig. And one of the things that he would say to Craig over and over again, he would call him a seagull. And he would say this, he would say, Craig, you're nothing but a seagull. All you're good for is sitting, squawking, and... I'll let you fill in the blank, a word that rhymes with sitting that I'm not gonna say on the live stream, you know? And and this was the kind of the, the statement he would make over Craig, about Craig. And you can imagine like how this would shape Craig's identity is. Since as a small boy, this is all he's hearing from his father. How, how it shaped his understanding of who he was as a man and his place in the world. And it wreaked havoc on his identity. Eldridge goes on to tell the story of though, what happened when Craig discovered the full truth of who he was and his heritage? See, Craig, as an adult, he learned the full story that his father was actually a war hero. His biological father was a war hero who was killed in battle. But it wasn't just that he was like this brave soldier, that he learned that his dad actually had the intention that if he came out of the war alive, he was going to carry the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to unreached people groups around the world. He had this call to be a missionary. And then Craig kept digging and he learned that his great-grandfather was William McConnell. Now that may, name may not mean a whole lot to you, but William McConnell was the very first Protestant missionary to bring the good news of Jesus to Central America. So you can imagine for Craig, this whole idea began to shift something in him. And eventually he actually dropped his adopted father's last name, took on his biological last name of McConnell, and something in him shifted. Because you see, there's this, there's this tendency that when we discover our heritage, when we know our story, it has this way of anchoring our identity and helping us navigate the way forward. Knowing your story, it anchors your identity. It helps you navigate the way forward. And guys, this is, this is why we are jumping into this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. Because guys, the gospel of the kingdom is the story of who we are as followers of Jesus. See, when you step into following Jesus, you're not just signing up for a different routine on your Sunday morning. <laughs> You're not joining in a club. No, we are given a new identity. We are given a new story, a new family to be a part of, and knowing that story will anchor us in who we are and help us navigate the way forward come what may. And so today, we're, we're going to be picking up on the story that we've been walking through in this series in the Gospel of the Kingdom. And I'm just going to tell you up front, today's sermon at times may feel a little bit more like a Bible class or an in-depth Bible study. We're going to be flipping through scriptures a lot. I encourage you to grab your Bible, have something to look at, and we'll have the, the scriptures on the screen as well. Um, but, you know, in 30 minutes, I can't cover everything. So this was mentioned in the pre-worship, and I want to tell you now, Wednesday night this week, Wednesday night at 8 p.m., we're offering kind of a, a deep dive into what we're looking at this morning. I'm going to cover a lot, but we're going to go even deeper on Wednesday night. And so if you're interested in learning more about what the scriptures have to say about this gospel of the kingdom in this particular part of the story, you can join us on Wednesday night at 8 p.m. You can find a link for this at ethoschurch.org forward slash daily. It will be a Zoom call. We would love to have you no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. I'd love to have you there. So, you know, I'm going to recap a little bit where we've been 
in this, this series so far. You know, we started talking about this idea of the gospel of the kingdom, and we thought, man, we've got to have some good common definitions here. What is the gospel? It's a word we throw around, around a lot in Christian circles. But gospel simply means, most simply means good news, but, but specifically, it, the gospel was an announcement of some far-reaching good news. So the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus used it, was actually this heavenly proclamation of all that God has done, all that he is doing, and all that he's going to do. So that's what we mean when we say the gospel of the kingdom. And we started, and it, we're reminded that this whole thing that we're studying, it is a story. It is an unfolding drama. And so we started at the very beginning. We go, man, where does this story start? And, you know, we've got this image to kind of represent the storyline. At the very beginning, we said, hey, this thing is rooted in this idea of a loving father who is a powerful king. A loving father who is a powerful king. And then the next week, you know, last week Brandon was with us and he looked and jumped into Genesis chapter 3 and he said, hey, this good father, this loving father who's a powerful king, he has a plan for humanity. But man, what we see is there, there is a hate-filled enemy who seeks to disrupt the work of the loving father and the powerful king. But it wasn't all bad news last week. We see that there's this hate-filled enemy, but man, in Genesis 3.15, we see that there is actually a hope-filled promise. And guys, that hope-filled promise that we looked at last week, it's this idea that, yeah, there's a hate-filled enemy, but man, there's a promise that there's one who's coming, an offspring of Eve, an offspring of humanity, who will crush the head of the hate-filled enemy, and he will end all sorts of evil and wickedness and pain and suffering in this world, and this promise is kind of planted in Genesis 3.15. This week, we're going to pick up with that, and what we're going to see this week is that it's a continuation of that promise. And we're going to start to unpack how is this loving father and powerful king, how is he going to live up to that hope-filled promise? And it's only appropriate that a loving father, what we're going to see today, is he's going to begin to fulfill his promise through a promised family. And next week, we'll look at it a little closer because he's a powerful king. He'll fulfill it through a promised kingdom. But this week, we're just going to look at the promised family, okay? So we're going to be in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 12. Now, I was going to tell you, a whole lot happens between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. <laughs> I mean, you, you've got a flood, you know, humanity's continued failure to live into their identity, and God destroys all the earth and saves one family and a bunch of animals and a, and a story about a giant boat and a floating zoo, and it's a wild story. You know, there's, there's this story of where humanity says, hey, we're going to be bigger than God, and they start to build this tower to the heavens, and God comes down and muddles their language, and thus nations are created. So no longer do you have just this one family that was kicked out of Eden. Now you've got all these nations that have spread out around the world. A lot happens between Genesis 3 and chapter, chapter 12. But despite the gap, God is continuing to tell the same story. You know, if you just read the story and you get past Genesis 3.15, this hope-filled promise, and then you keep reading, you're like, wait a minute, man, God, this promise is looking pretty lousy. <laughs> Humanity is still screwing it up. Like, what is happening? And we're going to jump in in Genesis 12, and you'll feel the continuation of the promise. And so Genesis 12, God comes to this man named Abram. And he gives him this calling and this promise. And this is the passage that was read over us before I got up here and started talking. So we won't read through it all the way. We're just going to kind of walk through. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to this man, Abram, and he calls him. But he doesn't just call him. He offers him a promise. He offers him a promise. And what we're going to see today is that this promise has three parts to it. God offers three parts to this promise, and this is in the notes if you printed that off online. The three parts to the promise is that he's going to promise him a land, a specific land, a large number of offspring, 
a big family. And then the third thing is he's going to offer this blessing, this promised blessing. So let's see where that is in Genesis 12, okay? So it starts in Genesis 12, verse 1. He comes to Abram, and he says, Hey, I want you to go from your country, from your people, to your father's household, to the land I will show you. God's like, Hey, I'm calling you to a place. And so Abram goes, and you get down to verse 7, and while he's in the land, listen to what God says to him in verse 7. He says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there's something about land in this promise that God is giving to Abram. He calls him and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a land. So that's the first thing is this specific land. But there's this other part of the promise that we're going to see over and over again. And it's this promise of offspring. Again, we see this first in verse 2. Look what it says in chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, what's going to come out of you is going to be this great nation, this this great family that is going to come from you. He hits it again in verse 7 that we just looked at. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, here's what's really amazing is that here, I told you that's the continuation of the same story from Genesis 3.15. If you were just being told the story or reading the story in the original language, that word offspring would jump off the page at you because it's the same exact Hebrew word that God uses when he makes the hope-filled promise. He says that a seed of Eve, an offspring of Eve, will crush the serpent. And then you get to this part of the story where everything's still going badly, and suddenly God goes, hey, it's going to be a seed, the offspring coming from Abraham, who's continued in the line of Eve and Adam. And so it's going, whoa, hey, there's that promise language again. Here it is. It's coming up again. So he says, hey, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you offspring, a huge offspring that's going to be a whole nation. And the third thing he says, he gives him this blessing. Look what he says in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And listen to this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Man, what an amazing promise. I want you to imagine, I want to tell you a little bit about Abram. Abram is married to this woman, Sarai, who's, who's barren, has not had any children, and God comes and he says, hey, don't you worry, I've got you. He said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you an offspring. You will have a family. And not only am I going to give you offspring and a family, I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. It's this incredible promise that God gives to Abram. But God's not done. He keeps going and trying to reinforce this promise with Abram. And so if you keep going in the story, you get to Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, God is going to show up yet again to Abram to reinforce this promise. Listen to what he says in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. Now, Lot was his nephew. He was traveling with him. His name comes up a lot here. This is what God says to him. Look around from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. So here it is again. God kind of reinforces this idea that I'm going to give you offspring. There's the same word, that word seed. He said, I'm going to give this to your offspring. I'm going to give you this land. And I love it. On this one, God adds this caveat to it. He says, listen, I'm not just going to give your offspring this land, but he says there's no expiration date to the promise that I'm giving to you. (laughs) I'm going to give it to your offspring forever. And then keep going. Look in verse 15. He says, uh, verse uh, verse 16, sorry, he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. (laughs) So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. He said, man, Abram, I want you to understand the magnitude of what I'm about to give you. Your offspring are going to be so numerous that if you could count the dust of the earth, that maybe you could count the number of your offspring. (laughs) 
So God just keeps reinforcing it. Now, again, we keep reading through the story, and what we're going to find is that Abram, uh, he begins to really wrestle with this promise. You know, you get to chapter 15, and you kind of get this picture of Abram. He's looking around. Some time has passed since God first came to him and made this promise, and he's like, yep, still no kids. There's still no one here. He's like, he's kind of going, you know, God, I understand this promise of a family, but um, I know how this all works. Like, for me to become a great nation, for me to have so many off, I got to start with one. <laughs> Need one kid, God. Throw me a bone. Like, what's going on here? And so which, that's what you're going to see at the beginning of chapter 15. Look. Look in verse 2, he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. It's one of his servants, someone in his household. Abram said, you've given me no children. So instead, a servant is going to be my heir. It's such an important picture of Abram. You know, Abram, by the way, is the one who becomes Abraham. Many of us have heard of Abraham, and sometimes I get mixed up and I'll say one name instead of the other. It's the same person. But, but you see, I love this picture of this great hero of the Bible because here he is just wrestling. God's made a promise. And he's going, God, wait, how's this going to work? How, you know, you've told me this, but I've got no kids. There's no kids to be the beginning of this great nation that you've promised me. And I just want to like say a word to you. Some of you, you, you hear the promises of Scripture, you hear the story of God, and there's just this thing in you that feels naturally a little bit skeptical, a little bit like, how's this going to work? I want you to see, man, this is one of the greatest heroes of faith in the Bible, and here he is right on the pages of Scripture wrestling it out with God, trying to understand how this promise could actually come to be. I want you to also notice God's response to him, though. He doesn't slap him on the wrist and say, Naughty Abram, why do, you know, why do you got to doubt me? No, listen, look what he does. Look at verse 5. It says, God took him outside, and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. As I don't know if, you know, if you live in an urban center, you know, this idea of going outside and looking at the stars. It's like, I know if you went in my backyard and God said, Aaron, try to count the stars, I'd be like, one, two, three, five, God. You told me I was going to be countless. I count five stars. You know, this is not what Abraham would have been seeing. You know, Abram didn't have the light pollution or, or the smog of an urban center. You know, I remember one time I went camping at the Grand Canyon with my wife about 15 years ago. I remember being outside with her and looking up at the sky, and it was like, like mind-blowing. The galaxy sprawling out before you. You know, the Grand Canyon can be hard to arrange, but hey, I remember one time I was just over at the Baldwin's house in the middle of nowhere, Lebanon, and I remember looking up at the sky and the same thing. It was like, wow, the multitude of stars. And as Abram is sitting there just amazed at God's creation and the number of stars, God says, hey, this is what your family's going to be like. Now, verse 6 is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Listen to what Abram says. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And you're going, what does that mean? Guys, here's what this means. It means that Abram believed God. He still had no kids, still didn't see any offspring, but God shows him this, and Abram believes him, and God says, Abram, because you believed, you are right with me. That's what it means to be righteous. You're right with God. He says, I want you to understand, Abram, that what has made you right with me is that you trust me. You believe me. 
You take me at my word and your belief and your trust in me has moved you into obedience to do what I've asked you to do. Guys, this is such a crucial verse for us as followers of Jesus because it tells us, and the the New Testament writers are going to build on this all the time, is to understand what it means to be made right with God is to take him at his word, to believe him, to trust him. Guys, this stands in stark contrast to any other religious teaching that you will find under the sun. Any other religion in the world, I don't care what it is, if you go to try to find it, it will tell you, hey, if you want to be right with God, right with yourself, right with the universe, whatever it is, here's the things you need to do. You need to meditate in this way. You need to pray this many times a day. You need to face this direction when you pray. You need to follow all of these rules. You need to jump through these hoops. This is how you can be made right with God. And yet God looks at Abram and he says, you are right with me because you believe me and you take me at my word. And that belief compels Abram to obedience and to living and walking in line with God and his will. Huge moment in the story. But it keeps going. Abram believes, and God says, hey, you're right with me. But then God says, hey, I want you to understand this isn't just about your offspring. He said, remember the promise? There were different parts to it. Look what he says in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. He says, not just about your family. It's about this land I'm going to give you. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? So the Lord says, this is where it gets a little weird. The Lord says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And guys, you know, we read this and we're like, wait, he just asked you how he's going to know. And and God said, yeah, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and a couple couple birds, you know, and I'm going to tell you how you can know. And we're like, this is so weird. But Abram, somehow, it's not that weird to him because he's like, all right, God, yeah, I got it. And he runs and he brings these five animals before the Lord. And then the story gets really weird. Because Abram proceeds to, like, cut these animals in half, spread them apart. And, guys, I mean, I don't want to get too gruesome here, but, man, I want you to imagine cutting a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And that's a lot of blood and just, it's gross. This is a messy ordeal. And Abram's, like, spreading these animals out, and he kind of creates this pathway of blood. And we're going, what in the world? But guys, here's what you need to understand. See, when, when Abram was alive, this is a great picture of God just meeting Abram where he was and speaking his language. See, Abram lived in what was often called a, a covenant culture, a culture of covenant. And this act that Abram was about to enter into with God, you notice God didn't have to give him any instructions. He knew just what to do because this was commonly called the act of cutting a covenant. Here's the simplest and easiest way to understand it that's been kind of taught to me. I had a teacher that once said it to me this way. He said, you know, in this culture, let's say you had Bob the sheep guy and Fred the goat guy. And Bob the sheep sheep guy kind of looks over at Fred the goat guy and he's like, man, I can actually do a lot better if I diversified my my livestock here a little bit, diversified my portfolio. And he says, if I had some goats to this, it'd be a little better. We'd be a little stronger if our parties came together. What do you think, Fred? What if we kind of merged forces here? And Fred's like, I think it's a good idea. And so literally what they would do is Bob the sheep guy would bring bring a sheep, Fred the goat guy would bring a goat, and each of them would cut their animal in half spread it in part, and the two of them would actually walk through the blood of those animals. In essence, what they're saying is, hey, here's the outline of our covenant with one another, and should one of us violate the covenant, may what be done, what was done to that animal be done to me. My own, my, may my blood be upon my own head. But when they'd come out on the other side of walking through the blood, Bob the sheep guy was no longer just Bob the sheep guy. He was Bob the sheep goat guy. And Fred was Fred, the sheep goat guy as well. They had this combined identity and force moving forward. And so this is what Abram, he's actually, he's like excited. He's like, man, the God of the universe is about to enter into 
this life-binding covenant with me. So he does it all. But what I love in the story is as you read it, you discover Abraham sets it all up. The animals are there. But what happens is this thick darkness comes over and Abram does not pass through the animals. Instead, he falls asleep. He's in this like trance-like state. And all of a sudden, the manifest presence of God shows up, a blazing torch and a burning fire pot, and it passes through between the animals. And Abram's going, wait, wait, what about what, you know, am I not going to pass through? But no, God passes through it alone. And this is such a significant moment in the story of understanding the gospel of the kingdom. Because what God is saying is this to Abram. He goes, Abram, this covenant is not dependent upon anyone but me. You're not going to walk through it. This is unilateral. This is not a contract where you have to keep up your end or I'm out. He goes, no, 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 I'm the one sealing this covenant. I'm the one walking through, and it will depend entirely upon me and my faithfulness. May my blood be upon my own head if I do not bring this promise to fulfillment. Guys, this is such a huge moment. Because years, years later, we would see a picture of just how dedicated God was to this promise. We see a picture of a bloodied cross where God in the flesh would hang and spill his own blood so that the fulfillment of the promise of his covenant could be carried out. It goes back to this moment. Back to this moment. So God says, hey, this thing's on me, Abram. I've got this. This is my promise to you. And then if you look, look with me in, in chapter 15, verse 18. As soon as he passes between the pieces, God says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He said to your descendants, I give this land. And he lays out these geographical markers to the land that he's giving Abram. We'll come back to that in a little bit and talk about some of, some of the implications there. Okay, now here's what's crazy. is All this stuff's happening, and God's still not done. You get to Genesis chapter 17, just a couple more verses. We're going to see God reinforce this promise again. In Genesis chapter 17, look in verse 6. God comes to Abraham and he says, I will make you very fruitful. Again, there's that offspring uh, promise. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. This is all foreshadowing to next week's conversation. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant, no expiration date, between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Look at verse 8. The whole land of Canaan I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. It's this, this reinforcement. God just keeps saying it over and over again. Abraham, land, offspring, blessing, everlasting, no expiration date. I'm giving it to you. Guys, this, this promise would be reiterated over and over again. In fact, if you keep reading through Genesis, we won't look at every example, but you get to Genesis 26, and God's going to reiterate the promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. They finally have a son. And God will come to Isaac, and he'll say the same thing. Isaac, I made this promise to your dad. I'm going to be faithful. Isaac has a couple sons, and God will come to one of his sons, this guy named Jacob, in Genesis 28, and again in Genesis 35, and God reiterates the promise to them. And guys, out of this promise, when you keep reading the story of the scriptures, this nation comes, because Jacob has 12 sons, and they become 12 tribes, and that, those 12 tribes become what is called the nation of Israel. So the rest of the scriptures, what we're going to see is this story of this nation of Israel, and really what they're doing is wrestling with these promises that God made to their ancestor Abraham. And what we're going to see is that it's just like this guy Craig at the beginning of the sermon. 
we're gonna see that their story, their heritage will continually serve as an anchor for them in their identity, as well as a helpful tool for navigating their way forward. A couple places where you see this, just real quick, you know, one of the stories we're not gonna be able to get to in this series that I hate is the story of the Exodus. You know, it's this another covenant that God makes with the Israelite people, and now you can read the whole story in the book of Exodus, but when God shows up to the, the kind of the main character in the story of Exodus, a guy named Moses, Moses has never heard from God, any of this stuff. God shows up to him, though, in this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and you know what he says to him? He says, hey, Abraham, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says that to Moses. And it's like this marker, this anchoring for Moses to go, oh, yeah, you're, you're, this is my identity. This is my identity. Mm-hmm. But you keep fast-forwarding through the story and throughout all the story of the scriptures, and you're going to see it over and over again. In the Psalms, you're going to find the Israelite people wrestling with this idea of all these promises, and it serves as an anchor. And we don't have to read this text, but you go read Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. And it's this restating of the promise. God is faithful. God is faithful. He made this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the land. They just keep restating it because it anchors them in who they are. You get to Isaiah chapter 49 and the prophet Isaiah will come and he'll help them understand the wrestling. Wait, what about this blessing to the whole world? And I love Isaiah 49, 6. God will look at them and through Isaiah, he'll say, listen, it's too small for me just to bless Israel. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles, to all nations, to people who are not within your family. So over and over again, this promise just keeps getting fleshed out throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. This is the the, the story, the gospel. Now, many of us, you might be sitting there going, okay, I get it. There's this family. They become a nation. They're leaning on these promises to Abraham. Where's the gospel in this? Like, what, I thought the gospel was, was Jesus. Where's the gospel in this story? Guys, uh, if, if you got your Bible, turn, turn to Galatians. Galatians. And we're jumping all the way into the New Testament. This is a, one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. But I want you to listen to Galatians chapter 3, uh, starting in, in verse 8. Galatians 3, verse 8. The Apostle Paul will write this. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are non-Israelites, so I'm a Gentile. If you, are not, if you are not related to Abraham by birth, a descendant of Abraham, then you're a Gentile. It says that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he announced, listen to this, the gospel. God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Did you know that when God came to Abraham and he gave him this promise, what Paul tells us is that he was actually announcing the gospel to Abraham. He says, he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, guys, right here we see God's going, this is the big story. I started with this man, and it goes through his family. This is all the gospel. It's all the good news. He starts it right here with this man named Abraham. It's all connected to the gospel. Now, I, I, I want to I kind of go, okay, so what do we take away from today? You, you can see where this fits in the story, that this loving father has made a hope-filled promise, and he's choosing to reveal it and carry it out through a promised family, beginning with this man named Abraham. But what, what do we do with this, and what do we see in this big story? I want to give us kind of three kind of basic takeaways Uh, that we can get from this today. And the the three takeaways are are this. It's God's faithfulness, God's power, and God's glory. God's faithfulness, God's power, and God's glory. Let's start with God's faithfulness. You know, 
looking at the story of Abraham from the moment where we stand in history, we get to see that God has indeed been faithful to his promise to Abraham. Here's what I mean. Like, you, you take this portion of the promise about an offspring that will become a great nation. Guys, there's evidence of that in the world today. We can see God did indeed bless Abraham and his family is huge. For centuries, the Israelites have been on earth, the Jewish people who traced their lineage all the way back to Abraham. We can go, whoa, God actually did the thing. He Through an old man and a barren woman, God brought about this entire nation that's still with us on the earth today. You know, that's one. What about the blessing? You know, he's been faithful to the offspring. What about the, the, the promise of blessing? You know, we see that through this family from Abraham, that God would eventually send his own son to be born God in the flesh through this young Hebrew Israelite woman named Mary. And he would bring his son into the world, and this man's name would be Jesus. And it was through this man, Jesus, this descendant of Abraham, that all nations would be blessed. This is why when we studied Acts, the apostles make this bold declaration. They say, there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. They're saying, listen, this is not just the story of the Israelites. This is for all humanity. Here's why this matters. As you see, when we see this story, it should anchor us in our identity, but help us remember, oh my goodness, this God is faithful. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And so you see, as we follow Jesus, there's these promises that we've been given that sometimes it's really tempting to go, well, how do I know? Do I really have that? You know, for example, Ephesians 1.7 tells us, hey, you've been given forgiveness of sins because of Jesus. But you know, we all have those moments where we, we do that thing that we said we'd never do again. You know, we trip up, we fall, we mess up, and we've committed to follow Jesus, but man, then we just, you know, there are, you name it, you're filling the blank, whatever your sin is, and you've had that moment where you go, man, well, is, is God going to really forgive me? Can he really forgive this thing? Or some of you have that sin that you've never told anybody about, you've been holding on to for years, and it just gnaws at you on the inside. And you go, yeah, you can say God forgives, but man, you don't know this thing that I did. But see, when we look at the story, we go, no, God is faithful. When he says that through Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, he is able to do it, and he will do it because he is faithful. Or you go in Romans 8, it says we're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. And we go, yeah, but how can I know that God's really my father? It's like, God, he's, guys, he's faithful. He's faithful. He keeps in line with his promises over and over again. We see this. Or maybe it's this, this promise that God is going to finally eradicate evil in the world. And we go, yeah, it seems kind of far-fetched. Can God really renew and make all things new? It's guys, guys, he's faithful. He has proven himself. He has done the things that he said he's going to do. You know, uh, so it's like, guys, we see the faithfulness, and this is just a little, a little aside here, you know, uh, we, we see his faithfulness in the offspring promise. We see his faithfulness in the blessing promise. Some of you may be going, well, what, what about the land thing? What is that about? There's no expiration date. And, you know, here's just a little something to crack the door to, to hook you to make you want to come on Wednesday night to the deep dive. You know, the truth is a lot of people, there's a lot of kind of confusion sometimes around what about the land God promised Abraham? What does that mean today? What does that mean for the future? You know, some would say the Israelites actually never possessed all the land that God promised to Abraham. So what does that mean? So we're going to actually look at that a little deeper Wednesday night in the deep dive. I encourage you to come join us for that. But guys, ultimately what we see is God, he's faithful. He's able to carry out his promises to the end. So it's not just his faithfulness, though. We see God's power here. Here, here's what I want you to see with God's power, that when God promises this thing to Abram, he doesn't go, okay, this, this, the fulfillment of this promise is reliant upon me and on Abram. 
Now remember the, the remember the, the pieces of the animal that God walks in between? God says, this thing rests on my shoulders. The fulfillment of God's promises rests on him and him alone. Why, why does this matter? You know, I think sometimes we can get some messy theology with our kind of role in this story. I've heard this in missions, uh, in missions circles. I'll hear people talk and they'll say, hey, Jesus gave us this great commission. Make, go into the nations and make disciples of all people, all nations. And, and we go, uh, okay, so there, we've got to go into all nations. We've got to make disciples everywhere. Or Jesus can't come. He can't fulfill the mission unless we do our part. And, and we start kind of taking on this burden as though God needs us to do this thing in order for him to carry out his promise. Guys, you know, I've seen this politically over the last year. I saw so many Christians, and I've talked about this before, so many Christians that fell prey to thinking that, man, it has to be one part or the other, one person in the White House or the other, in order for, for God to be able to keep doing what he wants to do. And we begin to think that God's ability to fulfill his promise is somehow connected to us being able to get it right. But guys, what we see in God passing through the animals is that God's power will bring the fullness and the fulfillment of the gospel. He doesn't need our help. Our job is just to be faithful. Our job is to believe in him and to live out a life that displays his love, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness to others while keeping ourselves unpolluted by the world around us. It seems to be going crazy. So you see, we got God's faithfulness. We see his power. He's got this thing. He can do it. And the third thing we see is God's glory. You know, God's, God's glory, what, what do we see in this? You know, the gospel, this gospel story, the gospel of the kingdom, it provides our identity. I've said that over and over again, anchors our identity, but ultimately, it is not about me. The gospel story, although it may anchor us in our identity, it's not about us, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about any one of us. No, the gospel story it is about God and his glory. Where do I see this in this story about Abraham? You know, it's interesting. Answer the question, how much of this promise did Abraham actually receive in his lifetime? I mean, just go through the three, the three factors, right? The, the land. Abraham did not receive the land in his lifetime. He died before the land was his. Or what about the offspring? Abraham saw two sons and only one of them were part of the promise. <laughs> so he dies. He's been promised a great nation and all he sees is one son that got a promise. What about the blessing? No, when Abraham died, the world had not been blessed through his family. Abraham did not receive the fullest, any of these promises before he died. But you see, Abraham had the eyes to see that the promise in the story was not about him, but about what God was trying to do through him for the sake of his name to bless the entire world. Guys, the gospel story is not about us. Now, this flies in the face of what culture kind of conditions us to think about when it comes to spirituality and religion and God culture around us will tell us that spirituality, your religion, your God should exist primarily to give you fulfillment, to make you feel better, to find your true self, this version of kind of a God who's here to bless us, to kind of bail us out when we're in trouble, but otherwise, you know, we don't really want him to do a whole lot else. But guys, this builds up a way of thinking about our faith as though it is about us, when in reality it is about God and his glory. It is about the glorification of his name. And what's beautiful is you know how he chooses to glorify his name? He chooses to be glorified by making all things right, by renewing all things, by healing all that is broken. And he does it through a promised family. He does it relationally through a people that he puts his name on. So you see, our, our takeaway is God, we see God is faithful. 
We see that God, God has the power. It's God's power. We see that it's about God's glory. These are our key takeaways. Now, there's a whole lot here we can dig into, and we're going to do some more of that on Wednesday night. Um, but right now, we're just going to kind of shift a little bit, and we're going to move into a time of communion. We're going to take, uh, take the cup, take the bread, as we do every single week. And, and this, this morning, I want us to really focus on the, that, that idea of God's faithfulness to us. You know, if you keep reading in the book of Galatians, the passage that I read earlier, verses uh, 8 through 9, you know, it's really cool. You get to verses 13 to 14. Listen to these words. This is what the Apostle Paul will say in Galatians 3. Verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Guys, this promise, the promises of God, are available to us because God sealed the covenant in his own blood. When you take the cup, when you take the bread, it's not just this little thing that we do. It is, it's this, this constant reminder that we've been sealed with a promise to be a part of God blessing the whole world through the offspring of Abraham and one man that would come from that offspring, this man, Jesus. So today, if you've been struggling going, man, I can't see God's faithfulness in my life. Or man, will God really come through? Will God really be able to do the things he said? It's like, man, take the bread, we take the cup, and we allow the Spirit of God to just solidify us, to anchor us in our identity so that we can keep finding our way forward no matter what this life throws at us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. It's a big story, God. It's so much bigger than us. You've been at work in the world long before us, and you will be at work in the world long after us. Thank you, Father. You are faithful and true. What you have spoken has come to pass. And Lord, what you've promised us about the future, it will also come to pass. Lord, will you let the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, as we keep learning about it, would you let it root itself deeply into our hearts, secure us in our identity as your children, as co-heirs, <clears throat> as those who will inherit your promises. And Lord, today as we worship, and as we commune, God, would you let your Holy Spirit just, just hold us tight, close to your promises, close to your covenant, close to what it is you're wanting to do. So come, Lord, lead us by your Spirit. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Ethos, let's worship. Let's prepare our hearts to take communion today.